2 Thessalonians 1 this morning. I decided to go ahead and uh, we finished 1 Thessalonians. Uh, there's only three more chapters in uh, 2 Thessalonians. And I um, thought it would be fitting to just go ahead and uh, uh, push right on through, especially because 2 Thessalonians really picks up where 1 Thessalonians left off. That makes sense, right? Um, and uh, but, but not just that, but even the timing of the writing of 2 Thessalonians. And um, <clears throat> so as we get into this, why don't we go ahead and open the word of prayer. We'll, uh, we'll likely tackle the whole chapter, chapter 1 this morning. And uh, let's ask God's blessing on uh, the message. Father, thank you for this uh, Lord's Day. Thank you for, uh, for everything that you've done and uh, for the good spirit that's here today. I pray, Lord, that as we draw our attention to your word, that uh, your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts. Lord, would, um, would you say the words that I don't say? Uh, the things that we need, Lord, would you guide and direct in all things. Uh, help my thoughts, uh, help us uh, understand uh, what you meant in your text today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you recall, um, the church at Thessalonica, it was started by uh, the Apostle Paul on his second missionary journey. And uh, something that stood out to me this week, actually, um, it was mentioned, I think, uh, uh, after... Uh, I believe it was after one of the services that we had, um, the pastor came up and kind of gave some thoughts during the invitation, and uh, and he had mentioned young Timothy and the unfeigned faith that Paul said that was in Timothy, and uh, young Timothy was uh, you know he was raised by basically a mother that that loved God, followed God, and a secular father, a father uh, quite frankly they didn't want anything to do with God, and here's how I know this. Timothy's mother and grandmother were both strict Jewish Jews, and Timothy was uncircumcised. That tells me that the father would not allow him to follow his mother's faith, because that was a very serious part of the Jewish faith. And so, uh, so that's that's really interesting. It was quite quite encouraging, actually, when you look at the text there in Second Timothy, talking about the unfeigned faith that Timothy had, and that's encouraging to. Uh, to our uh, our Christian mothers in particular with uh, with a lost husband, you know, and that you can still raise them for the Lord and still follow God, but uh, but it, not without his challenges. But anyways, in Paul's first missionary journey uh, is where he first encountered Timothy. Timothy likely got saved as uh, Paul was preaching there uh, in in uh, in the, in that town there uh, on his first missionary journey as he was coming through. The second time he comes through, he comes by this church, and the young man Timothy has grown. And uh, has really grown in the faith, and the whole church is saying, "Yeah, he's on fire for God," you know. And so Paul decides to take Timothy with him to train him. By the way, I love Tim, uh, Paul's um, uh, training model, very similar to that of Jesus. He had a roving Bible college. He said, "I'm going to train you. Come with me. Pack your bags, right? Or better yet, don't even bring bags. Uh, just come along, and <laughs> we'll figure this thing out." And by the way, I hope you're thick-skinned because we might have some rocks thrown at us. And um, but uh, he picks up Timothy. What's interesting is, is as he's coming around the Aegean Sea, uh, they're over there. Um, uh, boy, I wish I had the map up. If you have, uh, you have um, Ephesus down here, and you come on up. I'm trying to remember <laughs> where he picked up uh, Timothy. Uh, Dave, help me. Where was Timothy from? Pop quiz. Okay, we'll keep on going. And anyways, he comes on up to the top where we, uh, we, we know the story there in Philippi. He goes on. It's the second church he starts on his second missionary journey. Thessalonica. Timothy was in Thessalonica for three weeks before he was run out of town. If you, if you recall, they ran him out of town. Uh, we'll read the text in Acts 17 in just a minute. 
to, to kind of get the backdrop. In fact, why don't we go there real quick? Uh, we will pick up in First Thessalonians, I promise. But just given the, the backdrop, a little bit of history, uh, a little bit of review here. Acts 17, because I want you to see kind of the starting of this church really has an impact on the things that Paul's going to address in this church. But in Acts 17, here's what it says. Now, when they had passed through uh, Amphipolis to uh, Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. Now, they're up in the northern part there. This is uh, the area of Macedonia. I remember when Paul had that Macedonian call. This is where he was drawn to. Um, uh, I believe the implication here was there was no synagogue in between when he was at Philippi to Thessalonica. And so he would always start in that area where, where there was a synagogue. Uh, there was a foundation there to start with. These people already knew God. These people already uh, believed uh, what scriptures they had at the time. And what's he coming to do? He's saying, hey, the prophecies have been fulfilled. Messiah has come. That's the message he was bringing to the Jews. And so, so they came through. He says there was a synagogue there, so he decides to stay. Uh, synagogue of the Jews, verse 2. And Paul, as his manner was, went in into them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Jesus must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. Get this now. And some of them believed and, and consorted with Paul and Silas. And of the devout Greeks, a great multitude, and of the chief women, not a few. So you had some Jews believed, and then the Greeks, these were, uh, these were likely converted Greeks that, that became Jews. They were proselyte Jews. Many of them believed. By the way, that makes sense, right? These guys left their culture and their religion to believe, to believe God, to follow the Scriptures. So when someone comes along reasoning from the Scriptures, then, then it makes sense that these would be probably easier converts than some of the hard-hearted Jews, right? And then, of course, and then it goes on. This is really interesting. Of the chief women, not a few. Now, now many believe, and I'm on, I'm on this bandwagon, that these were a lot of the women of those that were chief in the city, the leaders of the city. Uh, the women heard and, uh, and probably uh, uh, to the shame of their husbands believed this message. And, uh, and so, so as they come through, they had a great, um, uh, if you would, a great uh, 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 response there. Uh, many of them were Gentile believers, uh, non-Jewish believers that got saved. And then uh, notice verse 5, it says, But the Jews, which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of a baser sort, and gathered a company, and, and set all the city in an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren to the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither, uh, come hither also. Whom Jason hath received, and these do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city, and they heard these things, uh, when they heard these things. And when they had taken security of Jason and the other, and of the other, they let them go. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night to Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. So they did the same thing, went down into the synagogue in Berea. Uh, these were more noble than those of Thessalonica, and that they received the word with all readiness of mind, and searched scriptures daily where these things be, uh, were so. So we'll just pause right there. Of course, uh, when they get word, catch word that they're in Berea, they, they continue on chasing them. It's not enough to run them out of their town, but, uh, but they head on down. And, uh, 
Sorry, someone's texting me during service. Um, Lystra, thank you. Thank you. When I ask questions and you guys don't speak up, I get texts. Uh, no, appreciate that. Uh, so Timothy is from Lystra. Um, anyways, so, so, so this is kind of the start of this church. He's run out of town after three Sabbath days. Those that opposed him, uh, many of the Jews that opposed, they got the whole city in an uproar. They, they put a mob together, basically. They assaulted the house of Jason. Uh, I believe it's pro- likely the same Jason that's mentioned in another place, who is a kinsfellow of Paul, probably a relative. And, um, and they called him out, uh, pulled him out of the house and everything, and he gave security. He, gave, uh, uh, he, he basically uh, probably paid a fine and assured them that they're not going to have trouble with Paul again. Okay? Now, what does this have to do with the start of Thessalonica? He was only there three weeks, three Sabbath days. And he reasoned with them. Those that got saved, I'm sure he discipled them during the week and, uh, and worked with them. But three weeks and heads out of town, fully having to trust God. Lord, whatever I planted there, I'm trusting you with those results. Didn't, he didn't start a church. They didn't have, or they, they didn't ordain a pastor. They did not have a charter service. They did. They just had a group of believers, and then they said, uh, you know, this is what we got. So then he goes on down to Berea. They catch up. He runs him out of town to Berea. He makes his way down. Now he's on the the uh, the the west side of the Aegean Sea. He's making his way down. He finds himself at Athens. You guys remember Athens, Mars Hill. He went to the tomb of the unknown god. Reasoned with him there. Some believed. Some said, "Well, here you get on this matter." Some doubted. And um, before he goes on to Corinth, which would probably be his toughest mission field. He sends Silas and Timothy back to Thessalonica. He's so burdened about what's going on at Thessalonica. And he says, I know I can't go back, but maybe you guys can go back. So he sends them back to Thessalonica while he continues on down to Corinth, the largest city, probably the most pagan city. He goes down there. This is a city that had many pagan temples. Uh, The tomb of Epaphroditus was there. They had temple prostitutes. Just the whole city was given to immorality. That's That's Corinth. Right? He goes down to Corinth and uh, by himself, and, uh, and of course he runs into um, Quill and Priscilla. That's where they become friends, tent makers by trade. He's making tents. They make tents. They probably lived with them. And, um, and then eventually Paul, I'm sorry, Timothy and Silas catch up to Paul. Here's the report they had. Paul, they're doing better than you can imagine. That church is on fire. That church is growing. That church has had such a testimony and such a witness, as we saw in 1 Thessalonians. Paul writes to them, he says, you've been so prominent with your witness that there's no one else for us to talk to. We have no need to talk to anybody. You've told them all. I mean, what a testimony of this church under persecution. He writes about persecution in 1 Thessalonians. He's going to mention it again in 2 Thessalonians. But the persecution that was with Paul, that was their foundation. Now, now how many of you would, would sit there and you listen to this crazy preacher that comes in with this new message and, and he's sharing, preaching Jesus. You know what he's saying is right. You know it's true. He's reasoning with you from the scriptures. And you say, I can't argue with this. I accept his message. And then you witness how they ran him out of town. How they assaulted the house of Jason where he was staying. And they're all kind of watching from a distance. And they think, hmm, is this really something I want to get involved in? Think about this. Is this really the path that I want to go? Something had so impressed them, I believe, about Paul's testimony, willing to face persecution, that they, that they saw that as a pattern. We will follow. We will be faithful even when the going gets tough. And we're going to see this thing through. So Paul commends them greatly in 1 Thessalonians. 
he writes the letter thanking God for them and giving them some instruction, writing to them about some things. There was some talk about, man, maybe we've missed the rapture. He says, no, no, the rapture hasn't happened yet. Second Thessalonians, he's going to give some things talking about the return of Christ, talking about the Antichrist. In fact, in Second Thessalonians, we have more information about the Antichrist than, than probably any other book. And he's, uh, and he's going to write to them, just trying to encourage them and strengthen their faith and really some deep things for a baby church. Okay, It's likely at First Thessalonians, uh, there's some debate if it was First Thessalonians or Galatians, but it's likely First Thessalonians was the first uh, epistle that Paul wrote very shortly followed by 2 Thessalonians. Probably a, a month or two months in between, he writes another letter, you know, and another thing. <laughs> and, he, and he sends them some more instruction. That's where we're going to pick up in 2 Thessalonians. So just getting that backdrop is important because of some things he's going to address. A couple months have passed. Things have not settled down. There's some persecution. So as he writes this letter, he's calling them in this first chapter really to endure. Notice verse number one, Paul and Sylvanus and Timotheus, that's Paul, Silas, and Timothy, unto the church of, of the Thessalonians, excuse me, Thessalonians, in God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we know who's writing it. These three are there writing it and sending it to them. Grace unto you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is opening greeting and, uh, and may, very common greeting for Paul. He says, grace unto you and peace from our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, when you're struggling, when you're all alone, those are some things you need, isn't it? These aren't just fluff. I don't think Paul's just using, I don't think Paul wasted words, inspired of the Holy Ghost. He says, I want you to, to rem remind yourself of the grace of our God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace unto you. Yes, the grace that saved you is the grace that's going to keep you, it's going to sustain you. The grace of God. And then peace. Sometimes you can get restless. Sometimes you're wondering, are we all alone? We're in this thing. We don't have an apostle. We don't have a pastor. We don't know what's going on. And, uh, and he says, hey, grace and peace. Where? Where's the source? God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, to step back and say, wait a minute. God's not left me in this thing. As Derek quoted earlier from Hebrews, hey, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. What an encouraging thought. Hey, you may feel alone, but you're not alone. Hey, grace and peace be unto you from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what he says in verse 3. We are bound to thank God always for you. You know what Paul's saying? Just like he was bound to preach the gospel, like he was bound as a servant of Jesus Christ, he says, I can't help. I am compelled. I am bound to thank God for you. When I hear of you, when I think about you, when I pray for you, for you I can't help but thank God for you. It is amazing what God is doing. He's going to brag on them a little bit. Notice what he says. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet or as it is fitting, because your faith groweth exceedingly and charity of every one of you uh, all towards each other abounded. So there's a few things going on with this. Their faith is growing exceedingly. That means with leaps and bounds, uh, put it in her vernacular. And, uh, and charity, or that's that, that um, selfless love, of every one of you towards each other aboundeth, so that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God. So here's what Paul is saying. Your testimony causes us, when we are visiting these other churches, we're talking about you. We're bragging on you. We are saying, guys, it is possible. Look at the difficulties. Right? Uh, when we look at 2 Corinthians chapter number 8, the Bible talks about the, the poor churches of Macedonia. Well, this is one of those churches in Macedonia. 
Philippi is another one of those churches in the Macedonian region. And, uh, and he says, they are in great poverty, yet they gave liberally. And uh, they had great affliction, yet they had an abundance of joy. And so, so they would talk to these other churches and encourage each other, saying, hey, look, it's possible. It's possible you to thrive in your faith. Look at this church in Thessalonica. They have great opposition. People are opposing them. They're, they're attacking them. And yet, what, what are they doing? Their faith is increasing like you wouldn't believe. Did you know smooth seas never made a skilled sailor? It is amazing when those difficulties come, what that causes you to do. It, it challenges you to find out what's really real. Right? Paul talks about in Romans how, how um, um, uh, you know, we glory in tribulation, is what it says. Knowing that tribulation worketh patience, get this now, and patience experience. And experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our heart by the Holy Ghost. And, and so, so, so here's, the, here's the progression. The trial comes, and you endure it. You take it patiently. And through that patience and understanding in that trial, experience comes about. You know what that experience is? It's taking what you know about God, what you know of his truths, and it's putting it into a very practical, real uh, light. All of a sudden, it's no longer theory. It's reality. There have been times even in my kids' lives where, they, where they'll see something, they'll experience something, they'll say, oh, is that what the Bible means when? You know what happened? Experience. Experience grew. That Bible principle went from theory to a reality. They've owned it. Buy the truth and sell it not. They've, they, they've owned it. That's what's happening in this church. And they're telling other churches, they're boasting in the other churches, saying, guys, this church over here, this is, this is where it's happening. This church is growing in their faith. They're growing in their charity, one for another. Remember, he mentioned that in 1 Thessalonians. He says, concerning brotherly love, brethren, I need not to write unto you. You know what he's saying? You guys have this figured out. I believe he wrote to them about brotherly love for you and me. This church had it going on when it came to brotherly love, but you know what? 2,000 years later, he says, you know what? There's going to be a little church in North Pole that, that needs to be challenged on, on brotherly love also. And so he says, you need not that right into you. Then he kind of reiterates some things about brotherly love. That's for all of us. That's for not, not just our, I'm not just singling out, God wasn't thinking of just our church, but, but you know, anyone that would read this years down the road, hey, they need to grow in brotherly love. This church was growing and abounding in their charity for each other. So he's given these wonderful commendations, keeping in mind the backdrop of what's going on. What is growing this faith and what is growing this charity for, for one another? Um, it's amazing when we think about uh, when difficulties come. When difficulties come, we are really going to need each other. It happened in the book of Acts. It happened in Thessalonica. When challenges come and difficulties come, we need each other. We need, uh, you know, we talked about how they had all things common. Let me just say, God was not promoting socialism. But what he was promoting is that the church met its needs. And when trials come and when hardships come, you know what? We're going to take care of one another. You have certain skills, and I have a certain need, and I have certain skills, and you have a certain need. What are we doing? We're sharing things. We're helping each other out. And, uh, and, and I think we can really see that. You know, there are some times something may go wrong here in, all the way up in, uh, in the Arctic. Something could go wrong in the wintertime in your house, and it could become serious quickly. I'm glad we have some people we can call on and say, hey, you know what? My boiler's out, and it's 40 below out. Dave, 
need some help, somebody, right? I'm thankful that we got some guys that that uh, you know uh, can can help plow a driveway and can you know uh, can 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 figure some things out and and care for one another. And um, you know it's a, it's a, and, and this church was experiencing some very great difficulties and and what was happening it was causing them to draw close. Notice what it says here in verse number four. So we ourselves glory in you and the churches of God for your patience and faith. Get this now in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure. He's thanking them, thanking God for their perseverance. He's bragging on them to the other churches for the, the the persecutions and the trials that they face, and he commends them for their steadfastness in that that they that they are faithful in it that they that they endured these persecutions. But then he shifts his attention in his message and he focuses on something kind of interesting. Notice what it says here in verse number five. He starts talking about God's righteous judgment. Now, now uh, because the sentence continues, let me, let me look at verse 4 again. He talks about the persecutions and tribulations that they endure, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God. Now, that's an interesting statement. The persecutions and the tribulations are a manifest, and the word manifest means to be brought to light. They're a visible token of God's righteous judgment. Now, when we think of righteous judgment, we start to think of God, you know, someone being punished for wrongdoing. We think of, uh, you know, when we think of the judgment seat of Christ, sometimes people instantly think, uh, you know, that, oh, my sins are all going to be brought up at the judgment seat of Christ. No, 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 your sins were all brought up at the cross of Calvary. Colossians 2, nailed to his cross. So what's the judgment seat of Christ all about? Rewards, the same thing, the same way there are judges in the Olympics. They're judging what's best. He's judging the best. He's judging that gold, silver, and precious stone. Wood, hay, and stubble being burned up. Why? To the glory of God. And sometimes we look at this, and, and there's going to be a righteous judgment. There is a trying, a refining that's going on in us, <clears throat> but then there is also going to be a judgment of the wicked. We're going to look at that, and we're going to see that here. So the persecutions, the tribulations, it's a very interesting phrase. It's a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which ye also suffer. <clears throat> God is doing something in you and through you to formulate you into something. In fact, we quote it all the time, right? Romans 8.28. For we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of God. That's verse 29. God is working all these things together in your life and my life to make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ. God's formulating us for something. You see, what he's challenging the Thessalonians with is keep the end in mind. Keep the end in mind. That's what's going to motivate you. And by the way, isn't that true in any difficulty in life? You hear stories of prisoners of war. What keeps them going? They've got a hopeful end in mind. One day, one day I may get rescued. The people back home haven't forgotten about me. Those kinds of things that will keep them going. You know, you ask them, you know, if you've ever heard any or seen any interviews of these prisoners of war and the different things, the, 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 the tricks that they tried to, to employ to keep them from losing their mind. It could seem like an eternity. Day in and day out getting tortured, malnourished, 
What's going to keep you going? Think about my homeland. Think about my family. I'm, I'm keeping an end in mind. And folks, it's the same thing with us. How many times you're going to find, connected with the return of Christ, a challenge to live godly, a challenge to keep on going, right? Uh, uh, you know, that's connected to that, that blessed hope and the glorious supreme of a great God and Savior. He says, because of these truths, you know, purify yourself, purge yourself, um, sanctify yourself, the, the, these kinds of ideas. And, uh, and so the tremendous challenge there that, that as these are going on, so, so he says this, which manifests token of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. What's he doing? He's refining us for his kingdom. He's refining us for his purposes. So afflictions are evidence of God's righteous judgment. But and he affirms to the Thessalonica, Thessalonians rather, um, that uh, uh, that they are participants really of Christ's sufferings. Look at verse number five, uh, or that's what I just mentioned. Uh, worthy of the kingdom of God. For which also you suffer. You suffer for the kingdom of God. Acts 14, verse 21 and 22. And when they had preached the gospel to that city, they had taught many, uh, and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith that we must through much tribulation enter the kingdom of God. There's going to be a lot going on here. Now, let me just say this. That's not about salvation. That's about the future kingdom. And God said, I'm preparing you for something. We are going to rule and reign with him. If we suffer with him, we will also reign with him. Uh, Philippians 1, 27-30. Only let your conversation, your lifestyle, your manner of living, be as become with the gospel of Christ. That whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And in nothing terrified by your adversaries. Don't let them shake you which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. <laughs> I love that. Paul's saying, you guys saw me suffer. You hear of my sufferings. It's going to be the same with you. <laughs> Thanks for the encouragement, Paul. That's what I wanted to hear. How far removed that is from what you hear on TBN. <laughs> well, just have enough faith, brother. You're going to be healthy and wealthy, and no problems are going to come your way. And if there is a trial, Job's friends, if there is a trial, you must be have some kind of sin you're harboring in there. Come on now. Paul's like, guys, you've seen me as the example. I've suffered. You're going to experience it. This is what we're going through. First uh, Peter 1, 6 and 7. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations or trials. You say you're going to rejoice, but right now there's a heaviness because of the trials. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, may be found unto the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Get that now, at the appearing of Jesus Christ. The end in mind. Now, how many of you, if you had a choice, I have in front of you, a bar of gold or a trial, which would you pick? God says the trial is much more precious than gold that perishes. See, we have to have an internal perspective. We have to understand the end is uh, the end of a thing is better, and there is an end at the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, when we when we uh, uh, when we see Jesus, think about this now. Imagine the person with his arms full of gold 
Jesus comes. Imagine what's going to go through his mind. That was a waste. Look at Jesus in his glory. Then you got the guy. As Paul said, I bear in my body the marks of Christ. Lord, I did this for you. I sacrificed for you. I endured for you. And at the opinion of Christ, you, your hands are empty, but you see him. Think of the, the, what's going to go through your mind, the difference. There's my Savior. There's my rest. There's my blessed hope, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. First Peter 4, verse 12 through 16, Beloved, Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. I love when people meet with me, they're going through a difficulty, and they say, well, you don't understand. This is, this is a strange thing, is what they're trying to tell me. Well, the Bible says it's not a strange thing. Well, you understand, this is different than what anyone else is facing. No, no, it's not strange. There's no temptation taking you, but such as is what? Common to man. Common to man. It's not strange. That's what the devil wants you to believe. You're the only one. No one gets you. No one understands. Just go crawl up in a hole somewhere and don't get any comfort. Don't get any help. That's a terrible place to be. That's, that's where Jacob found himself when he thought his son Joseph had died. The Bible says that he refused to be comforted. That's a terrible place to be. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice. Inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. For the spirit and the uh, uh, spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part, he is evil spoken of. That's those who are causing the persecution. On their part, he is evil spoken of. But on your part, he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other man's matters. It, yet, if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. See, it's not, a, what is it to suffer for doing something wrong? Oh, I'm going through such trial. Well, you broke the law. I'm locked up for all these years. Yeah, you killed a guy. What do you expect? But I'm locked up for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like John Bunyan for pre in prison for preaching the gospel without a license. It was Pilgrim's Progress, one of the best sellers even to this day. Wonderful story. Prison for preaching without a license. Think about many in the early days of America. Patrick Henry came to the scene as a lawyer for defending Baptist preachers in the early days of America. Why? Because they were thrown in prison for preaching without a license. And he'd go town to town, and he would offer up his services for free, and he'd first stop at the local uh, local jailhouse, and he'd say, are there any preachers in? And he'd defend them, because he was seeing they were not given fair trial from city to city to city in America, by the way. That's part of America's history. We don't learn about it in the textbooks. Pre-Revolutionary War. Then a man suffer as a Christian. So then notice, look at verse number six. Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. You know, there is a reckoning that's going to take place. And this is a part of God's righteous judgment. You know what he's doing? He's ensuring, he's, he's, he's 
He's, if you would, putting the nail in the coffin of the fact that they deserve his judgment. They deserve, uh, uh, if you would, uh, the wrath of God. But he assures them of their just of, of, of judgment that it's coming, and we, which is an encouraging thing. Sometimes uh, David had this trouble in some of the Psalms. You know, why is it? I'm trying to think of. Um, um, I'm trying to think of the Psalm. Anyways, he asked the question in many different ways. But you know, how come the the ungodly, the wicked, they're prospering? You know, while I'm struggling, and then in one of the Psalms he says, "But then I remembered their end. Then I considered their end." I remember, you know what? For the wicked, for the lost, their best day on this earth is the best it's ever going to get. You know, for us who are saved, our worst day on this earth is the worst it can ever get. What a thought. What's the matter? You having a bad day? Yeah, it's only going to get better. For a lost person, having a bad day? Yeah, it's only going to get worse. Deuteronomy 23 35, God says, To me belong vengeance. And recompense, their foot shall not uh, excuse me. Their foot shall slide in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things that shall come unto them make haste. But then God reveals some things. Uh, the Apostle Paul, inspiration of the Holy Ghost, reveals some things concerning Christ's second coming. Look at verse number seven. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. Now, when you think about Paul's ministry in his life, do you think about rest? You know what? Paul had it easy. He rested. Paul was one of those moochinaries. You know, they raise up support so they can have an unending vacation. You know, Paul was a hard worker. Paul said, I don't know what's ahead, but I do know one thing. Persecutions are waiting for me. It was almost like it was a sign that he was in the right place, that he was in God's will. He comes into a city, and it's kind of quiet. It's kind of peaceful. Am I in the right place? And then that first stone hits him in the side of the head. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm where I'm supposed to be. That was like the mark of Paul. And uh, everywhere he went. And so what does he say? Rest with us. What in the world are you resting in, Paul? He's resting in his assurance. Blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. You know what he was saying? The, you know, the, the, the songwriter, uh, Fanny Crosby, she wrote that song, Blessed Assurance. Think about that. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory. The thought of Christ, her Savior, the thought of my future with him, it's a foretaste. It's, a, it's, it's, it's this, this hope, this blessed hope, this, this image of what's ahead. It's just a little taste, a little foretaste of glory. That motivates me. That, that, that encourages me. You know, again, it's only going to get better. It will be worth it all when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrows will erase. So bravely run the race until we see Christ. The revelation of his second coming. Look at uh, again, verse 7. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus Christ shall be revealed, the apocalypse, that's what the word apocalypse means, the revealing, revelation. That's the word there. When he shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. What a wonderful day that's going to be. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God. Now, let me just pause right there, and then I'll read the rest of the verse. If we're not careful, I know the atheist or the, 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 the person that's antagonistic to the Christian message is going to say, well, that's not a very fair and loving God. That just simply takes vengeance because they don't believe. 
take vengeance because you don't know. Well, that's not fair. That this 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 not knowing, it's almost like a passive thing. Well, it's not fair just because they don't know something. You're going to judge them and you're going to take vengeance on them. Notice what the whole verse says. Uh, who know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They refused to be saved. They obeyed not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Interesting thought. The Bible tells us in 1 John chapter number 2 that Jesus Christ is our propitiation. I love that word. That word is so rich in meaning. Propitiation. What is propitiation? Jesus Christ is the propitiation. He is the acceptable sacrifice to appease the wrath of a holy God. That when I place my faith in Him, that that, that, that sacrifice is so fitting that God removes my sin and my guilt from me and places it on the person, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and then in exchange puts His own righteousness into me. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's what took place. That's the great transaction, folks. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it's interesting with what it says. And he is a propitiation for our sins. But not for our sins only. Get this now. But the sins of the whole world. Let me ask you. If Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, does that mean the whole world is going to heaven? Does that mean the whole world is saved? Why not? He died for them. You know, the amazing thing, if you die rejecting Jesus Christ, you die in your sin unnecessarily because the price has already been paid. Well, think about this now, which makes you now twice guilty before God. You are guilty for your own sins, but you're also guilty of the blood of Christ because he died in vain as far as you're concerned. Think about that when you think about the wrath of God being poured out on somebody. Well, that's not fair. It's not fair as to deny God. It's not fair as to deny the gift of God that He gave through Jesus Christ. This fiery judgment on them that know not God, who've denied, who've rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 66, verse 15 and 16. For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with His chariots like a whirlwind to render His anger with fury and his rebuke with the flame of fire. For by fire and by his sword will the Lord plead with all flesh. An interesting phrase. With a sword he'll plead with all flesh. What does the Bible say in Revelation when he comes? Out of his mouth proceeds a double-edged sword. What's he doing? He's pleading with them. And with, with the same mouth that said, let there be and spoke the worlds into existence, the same mouth is going to come in his judgment. A double-edged sword. By fire and the sword uh, will the Lord plead with all flesh, and the slain of the Lord shall be many. Jude 14 and 15. And Enoch, also the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these things, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are, that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed, and their, and they, um, and their hard speech, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. You think he has an opinion about their ungodliness? <laughs> and then he points to the punishment and eternal de destruction from the presence of the Lord. Look at verse number 9. Who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. How long is this punishment going to last? Everlasting. Some people try to deny the everlasting fact. 
Well, you know, maybe there's some purgatory and people are going to come around. Maybe there's going to be a time of, 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 of purging. No, no, The word there is, that is where we get the word for eons, referring to a long period of time. And, uh, and, and, and it has that ending on that word, which means taking it to its fullest extent. You know what that means? Forever and ever and ever and ever. And ever and ever and ever. You know, really, if you think about it, that's really the worst part of hell. That there's no relief. That it will never end. It will never end. There was a poem I heard one time about, uh, about a man going to hell. And he was talking about all the different horrors of hell in very... Uh, very vivid poetic language. And he talks about the worms crawling at his feet. Talks about the flames. Talks about all these things. And the devil's there to kind of take him on a tour, so to speak. And then he talks about how, then he comes to this closet and the devil says to him, he says, let me show you now the worst part of hell. And he opens up the door and just, just bracing himself for, for how horrible it might be. And he looks inside and he says, it's just a clock. <laughs> it's just an old wooden clock. And the devil says, look closer. And he said, and I could hear the devil's sh uh, uh, um, shrill mock when I looked and saw there were no hands on the clock. And he says, forever in torment, forever with worms, forever, and kind of goes on and on. But uh, that's the worst part. Think about this. Imagine, imagine people in hell, they've been burning there. And the, 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 the agony and the torment and God sends, uh, let's say God sends Gabriel the archangel with a message, the messenger angel. And he says, can I get everyone's attention in hell? Can I get everyone's attention? Stop, stop screaming just for a minute. I, want to, I have an announcement. God has changed his mind. You only have to be here 10,000 more years. Can I tell you? There would be tears of joy. There would be excitement and rejoicing in hell. You mean only 10,000 more years, and then there's a glimmer of hope. Folks, forever and ever and ever. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. We ought to get a fire under us, lest they get a fire under them. The punishment of eternal destruction from the presence of the Lord. Matthew 13, 40-43. As therefore the terrors are gathered and bound, uh, uh, burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of the world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of, uh, out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Who hath ear, he who hath ears to hear, let him hear. And then notice verse number 10. The glorification and admiration of Christ and his saints. Verse 10. When he shall come, talk about Jesus, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because their testimony among you was believed, uh, our testimony among you was believed in that day. Interesting, when he comes, it says, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints. Now, God's got glory in himself. But you know what God wants? He wants to be glorified in his saints. You know, all things were created for his glory. God wants to be glorified in his saints. And where does that start with? Because you believed. You believed the gospel. You believed our report. Folks, that's the very first thing. Jesus, in his earthly ministry, he says to his disciples, Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. 
There's a glorifying of God in fruit bearing. There's a glorifying of God in saints and believers that first believe the testimony, believe the report, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and go out and live accordingly. It's good that you believe the gospel, now go live the gospel. That's what Paul said in in Philippians 1, as I mentioned earlier, that your conversation, your lifestyle, be as it becometh the gospel of Jesus Christ. That whether I be present or else absent from you, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast. He says, I want you to have such a testimony that whether I'm there present with you or I just hear about it, you guys are serving God. You're striving together for the faith of the gospel. Then Paul emphasizes, uh, uh, while he emphasizes the righteous judgment of God, he also points out, the destiny of those who endured and remained faithful. So, so here's the challenge. He says, God wants to be glorified on your behalf. Verse number 11. Wherefore also, and he gives this wonderful prayer request as he closes this out. Wherefore also we pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling. What calling? That we're going to enter his kingdom. That we're going to be one of his. That we're going to see the righteous judgment on the good side of things. Not the bad side. But don't, don't be on the bad side of God's judgments. Don't be on the negative. You, listen, you're not going to win. You're not going to come out ahead. But notice what it says. This calling. That you'd be worthy of this calling. Worthy of this calling to suffer for his sake. Be made conformable into his image. That you're worthy of this calling. Now when we think of worthiness, many times we think of, you know, well man, who can say they're worthy of God? Who can say that I'm worthy? And really, it's petitioning God to, for their worthiness, if you would, for our worthiness of this calling. The, word, the phrase there, counted worthy, it's in the passive perfect, which, which tense, which means this. It's something that is done to you in the future. In other words, God makes you worthy. The same God that saves you, the same God that sanctifies you, the same God that makes you worthy. It's the grace of God working in. And he says this, I am fitting you, or I'm making you worthy. I'm fitting you for my purposes, for my kingdom. I'm fitting you to this end. What an awesome thought. Because you and I, we start to think, and we think this way quickly, by the way. That's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of false teaching and false doctrines out there because we, we, we kind of get our wires crossed. What, 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 it pain, obtains, or what pertains to salvation? What pertains to Christian living? What pertains to the future? We kind of start getting wires crossed, and it messes up things. Sometimes we fall into this trap of like lordship salvation. If I'm worthy enough, if I, if I make him lord of my life, he'll accept me. No, no, no. You are accepted in the beloved because of what Jesus Christ did. Now live like it. We've got to get it in the right order. You see? And so when you think of this worthiness, oh, I'm not worthy, I haven't done enough. No, no. Praise the Lord. He's going to make you into this position. He's going to train you. I remember when I joined the army, I was not a soldier yet. Just because I went to MEPS and I passed the physical and I did all this stuff, I wasn't a soldier yet. I, in fact, growing up in California, I, had, I didn't even handle the gun. I had a BB gun. That's about as far as I went. And I was warned, you'll shoot your eye out. I'm lucky I didn't. I didn't have, hey, they're going to send me into battle with a, with a rifle, and I, I didn't know what I was doing. So what did they do? They said, no, 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 you first have to go through our training. And we have to get that civilian out of you and make you a soldier. So what did they do? Back before the woke army, they actually trained us and, and put us through quite a bit. Ten weeks of training before you even go and start learning a job skill. 
and you learn how to do some push-ups with good form, and you learn how to march in order, and you learn how to say yes, sir, and salute, and stand up straight, and, and you learn how to fire a rifle, and you learn how to do all these things till it becomes second nature. And when you're done, you have been made a soldier. You're worthy of your calling. Private first class Aaron Richards. And I became worthy of a calling. Who made me worthy? Well, they did. They formed it into me. And so does the Lord. He's forming something into you, making you worthy to this calling. And this calling, this calling to suffer, to be with him, to reign with him, counted worthy of the kingdom of God, as we saw earlier, for which ye also suffer, in verse 5. And then he prays for God to fulfill his good pleasure in him with all goodness. Look at the last part of verse number 11. And fulfill all the good pleasure. Get this now. God wants to fulfill in you all the good pleasure of his goodness. That's amazing. All the good pleasure of his goodness. Do you think you're going to run out of God's goodness? Or run short of it? Think about that phrase. All the good pleasure. Now, I don't know all of that entails. But all is a pretty all-encompassing word. All of his good pleasure. In all his goodness. And the work of your faith with power. God wants to put into you these things. The work of your faith with power. What's God doing? He's developing something in you. He's making you into something. He's making you worthy. And along the way, what's he doing? He's saying, this faith is going to be strengthened. We've already looked at the faith of this church through the persecution, through the tribulation. They've grown in strength. They've grown in faith. They've grown their love to each other. And he says God wants to, wants to complete this thing. He wants to make this, this work of faith with power. And he thank God for the opportunities to work our faith. To work our faith. Heard a horrible, horrible illustration this week about putting feet to your faith. I don't even want to share it now. And the preacher talked about the lady that was praying that God would God would shut down this liquor store in town, shut down the liquor store in town. And finally, she thought, I'm going to put feet to my faith. And she went and burned down the liquor store. Can I tell you, that's not putting feet to faith, okay? Are we clear on that? Okay, just so we're clear. This is being recorded. Maybe I should take that part out. Preacher down there said to, to burn down all the liquor stores. Putting feet to faith. I, taught, I mentioned in Sunday school to Derek, you know, God opens doors, we step through them. That's feet to faith. Lord, give me an opportunity to serve you. Oh, I don't want to go do that. Well, there you go. Lord, would you use me? I don't know why. I just feel like I'm always being used. Welcome. Uh, Jesus felt that way too. Hey, were there not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? I feel used. I've had 5,000 people. They come back the next day wanting more bread, and I tell them I am the bread of life, and they all go away all discouraged and sad, and he turns to his own disciples. 5,000, they're all gone. Are you guys going to go away also? Think about the emotion Jesus must have felt in his humanity. Are you going to go away also? He had to have felt used. What do you think it means to be used of God? He's put us here to serve others. Guess what? Others are going to use you. Putting feet to your faith. Uh, it takes the power of God working in you as you step out in a work of faith. Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, which he hath begun a good work in you, 
or performance of the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 2.13, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Ephesians 2.10, we all know Ephesians 2.8-9, For by grace ye are saved through faith, not of yourselves as gifts of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, his masterpiece, his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. You know, if you if you were to build something, and it doesn't work for what you built it for, what is it good for? If you go down to the car dealership and you say, I just need a, a brand new Ford pickup, and you drive it home and it breaks down, and there's nothing you can do about it, there's the you, you have a mechanic go through it bumper to bumper, I can't figure this thing out, it's just all in pieces, it's all falling apart, and it says you shouldn't have gone to the Ford. Um, if, if it never runs again, let me ask you, what is that good for? Well, in Alaska, it's good as a border in your property. Just yeah. put the cars, line them up. But well, what is it good for? It's good for nothing. And if God has made you for a purpose, and you're not fulfilling your purpose, you know, all things created for His glory, then what is it good for? Hey, if the salt has lost its savor, what is it good for? But to be thrown out and trodden under the feet of men. Think about this now. We are as workmanship and created in Christ Jesus unto good works. There is a work of faith, and it is to be done with power. What's the source of that power? Let me just ask you that question. I believe it's implied. What's the source of the power? Anybody? God himself. The Holy Spirit. It's he that worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. The ultimate purpose of God's grace. He wants to do something in you. Look at verse number 12, and we're done. That the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you. And ye in him. That's interesting. So God wants to be glorified in you, but notice that. And God wants you to be glorified in God. You know when God is doing something in you? There is a natural glory that's happening. Now it's not for me, it's not for me to boast or anything like that, but they're in this life, but then in the next life. When his glory shall be revealed in you, the Bible tells us. What a wonderful thought. We refer to heaven, we refer to that as glory. It will be glory. That's interesting. So God says, uh, I, I want you to be glorified in you, but you'll be glorified in me also. And ye in him, according, here it is now, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. How does it happen? According to his grace. The grace of God is bringing us salvation that appeared unto all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. The same grace that saves you is the same grace that teaches you, that grows you, that allows you to be glorified in him and he in you. What a thought. In these verses in 2 Thessalonians, we really see this heartfelt encouragement in the Apostle Paul. He's commending them because of their persecution, their endurance. Their, their willingness to suffer for Christ. And he says, hey, keep the end in mind. What's the end? You'll be glorified in him and he in you. What's the end? Christ is going to appear. What's the end? He's making you worthy for this calling. What's the end? Uh, he's, he's fitting you for a kingdom. He's preparing you. As we think about this, let me just challenge us with this. You say, well, the, what's the application? How do I apply this today and tomorrow? Listen, there's a mindset that we ought to, we ought to adopt as believers. I fully believe that my little children are going to see persecution, serious persecution in America. It's coming. Are we going to be faithful? 
Are we going to are we going to live with conviction? Already today, we see all these churches going woke and going embracing un, all kinds of ungodliness. What are we going to do? Are we going to stand on what's true? Are we going to say, you know what, God, this book's getting kind of old and archaic. Um, we're going to kind of move on. Oh, we still believe in you, God, but we're going to kind of change our image of you or the impression of you. We're going to gender neutralize you. We're going to neuter God. I heard this horrible, this, this woke creed that was done by this, at this, this one so-called church. And they referred to this non-binary God that had a son that had two dads. Listen, having a, having a biological father and a stepfather is not... Anyways, Jesus is the only begotten of the Father, but God chose Joseph to raise him. That is not a perversion of having two dads. That's what God chose to bring his son into this world. Anyways, get off that hobby horse. Well, let me say this. There's going to be times when our faith is tested, our faith is tried. A faith that can't be tested is a faith that can't be trusted. God wants to develop that in us. 2 Corinthians 4, 17-18, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. That's that future. That's keeping the end in mind. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. The Bible calls this hope. Where if, if a man sees it, what hope is there? See, it's the things we are hoping for, the things we are looking forward to based on the promises of God. Well, we have a word of prayer.